You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. You can uh, turn in your Bibles to the book of James. James chapter 1. And we will be looking at, I'm going to read verses uh, 2 through 5, and then uh, the section that we're going to look at this morning is uh, uh, particularly verses 12 through 18. So um, if you will stand for the reading of God's word, I will read scriptures. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Blessed is the man who remains, starting in verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my brothers, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought, forth by the, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have just heard you speak to us. And I pray that you would make the words that uh, I say here clear. I pray that the words I say you would use as you know each person in this room and what they need to hear. Uh, Holy Spirit, I pray that those who need encouragement, you would encourage those who need conviction, conviction. And above all things, I pray, Heavenly Father, we would see your goodness and the marvelous work of Christ uh, before us. So help us, we pray uh, now, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. As Jamie mentioned uh, in his welcome, this is Palm Sunday, uh, the day where we remember Christ coming into Jerusalem and the crowds welcoming him, cheering him, saying that he is the king that we have been waiting for. And over the past several months, we've been going through the book of James, James being the brother of Jesus, and 
I, as we return to James for one last look, I can't help but wonder what it was like for James to watch his brother march in and have everyone seemingly welcoming him as this incredible hero. And then, in the space of less than six or seven days, that same brother uh, snatched from him, brutally tortured, and then killed. Now, we... It seems that James didn't really know exactly who Jesus was for most of his life. And then, suddenly, his brother rises from the dead, and James is changed. And so, one of the things that is a key theme in James is that life will be very hard. He himself, growing up with Jesus, would have grown up we know from the Gospels, very poor. And he watched the hardships that his own brother went through, he himself even doubting the things that his brother said about himself. And then James himself, once he sort of has the aha moment and realized that his own brother is the Son of God, becomes a leader in the early Christian church and is one of the first to die for the faith. And yet also in this book, James paradoxically sees that all this suffering and trial that his brother went through on behalf of anyone who would believe in him is transformational and does not, the story does not end in trial and suffering. And he picks up on that here. He says, perseverance leads to blessedness or eternal happiness and a crown of life. That said, knowing the end game, it doesn't mean that going through trials in this life is easy. It's not always easy to make sense of why bad and evil things happen to us. And this morning, our passage that we're going to look at here, James does not actually explain the why part of suffering, but he does talk about how to go through suffering. And to do this, and I think that hopefully this will be helpful review for us as a kind of wrap-up for James and also set us up to look at Job, uh, a book all about lots of suffering, the key points I want to look at are going to answer the question, who is God? So first, we'll look at who is God, what is his nature, what is he like in who he is, what is he like in his actions, secondly, and then the last two are, what are the means by which he accomplishes his purposes for us, so his means and his purposes for us, okay? That's what we're going to do this morning, and one of the things as I go this passage is packed with all sorts of allusions to the book of Genesis. And I'm going to try to point some of those out, but if I miss some, kind of be tuned for Genesis 1, 2, and 3. All right. So, who is God? What is he like? When life gets hard in the book of James, 
he says, on the one hand, we may persevere, we may hold on, but on the other hand, when, when hard things come our way, a very natural temptation is to actually turn on God and say, God is tempting me. God is making this ridiculously hard to follow him. But James says, you can't do that. That's one thing you cannot do. You cannot say that God is tempting you. Now, real quick, he's not saying you cannot question God. That is not the same thing. It's not wrong to ask God questions. And in fact, if you read lots of the Bible, God's people have regularly had tons of questions for God when things get hard. But that is not the same thing as saying, God, you are tempting me, okay, to have that clear. Because in fact, James is now going to say why you can't do that. And one of the reasons is because if you think that God is tempting you, you will not be able to persevere. You will not be able to stick it out. So what is the first thing that James says, the first reason he gives why you should not say that God is tempting you? And he says that it is because, verse 13, God himself is not tempted by evil. He cannot be tempted by evil. There is nothing appealing. There is nothing appealing to God about evil and sin. And the idea of, well, we'll get there in a second. One of the things that James says, he says, not only does God not, can, he cannot be tempted, but we, on the other hand, our own desires are the things that is where the temptation comes from. And notice in verse 13 that James also says that God cannot be tempted, and he himself tempts no one. It's interesting that James adds he himself, that himself is meant to be emphatic. What is himself in contrast to? Well, it's in contrast to at least two things. On the one hand, in James, he's aware of demonic forces, if you look at James chapter 3, verse 15, and even calls Christians in chapter 4, verse 17, to resist Satan. And it seems that one of the key contrasts here, and this is why it is so important to not say that God is tempting you, is that Satan is known in the Bible as the tempter. That is what characterizes Satan, the evil force in the world. So, if you confuse God and Satan, you are in very big trouble. And here's what temptation is. Temptation is wanting to take advantage of somebody's weakness to lead them into evil that they might be destroyed. So, here's an example. Two examples where Satan is called the tempter. You could look in Matthew 4 where Satan tempts Jesus when he's very hungry. Or 1 Thessalonians 3, 5, where Paul says to a persecuted bunch of Christians, the, one of his first churches, he says, 
For when we were with you, that's Paul and uh, his buddies who were working with them, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith. Why? For fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor was in vain. He was afraid that in the hardship, the tempter would come in, take advantage of those hardships, and, and destroy the faith that was there. God has no interest when hardship comes of taking whatever weaknesses you have and then pulling you down, as we will see. In fact, just the opposite. He has no interest in evil, and he does not delight in evil. But there's another contrast of the himself, and that is that each of us has desires that drag us away. It is not God, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. What's interesting is that though James is aware of Satan's influence and power in the world, he does put very solidly responsibility on ourselves. Now, here's one of the things that's really striking, though. He says that we each have weaknesses, suggesting that we're not all tempted by the same thing. Some of us may be vulnerable to gluttony. We love food. Some of us, it might be sex and lust. Others, it might be for stuff and greed. And here's one of the things that I think comes out of this as far as application for us is that we should not despise brothers and sisters because they have weaknesses and temptations that are different from ours. In fact, we all need each other to help persevere and fight our weaknesses and our desires. And here, James uses this, these two words, lured and enticed. That language comes from hunting and fishing in the ancient world, right? You want to catch a fish? You dangle a worm out in front of it, something that looks yummy, and then you catch it and you eat it, and that fish is toast, right? Or enticed. Maybe you put out some sort of trap for some other creature that you want to lure it in. It's for catching prey. And notice that the process is one that it starts with desire. When desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is grown to its fullest, is death. And it's strange, James describes this sort of as a laboring process, right? Almost like pregnancy, then giving birth, and what you hope for in pregnancy, right, is to have a baby, a living baby right there. But here James, in stark contrast, says, sin will give birth to death. And so here's the other key application, is that we want to give no room. Those desires that we have, we want to give no room to them. They might seem small and insignificant at the beginning, nice and small, but when it grows, the end result is terrible. So we want to be spiritually alert. Now, 
one of the things that's wonderful about God is that not only is he untemptable, but he also doesn't change. Verse 17, there is no variation or shadow due to change in God. What's interesting is this language of shadow and variation has to do with the stars and the sun and the moon in the sky, right? Which cycle and they change day and night. But God is eternally ever bright. And he makes those things, as we'll see. But there's no shifting shadows with God. It's not like if you look at him one way and then he turns, he looks sort of different in another way and then he's hiding something. There's no shadows in God. Unlike our desires, which shift and change over time, often warping us away from that good righteousness that God made us at the beginning in Genesis chapter 1. And this is wonderful news that God does not change because he is also good. That's what's really good about the fact that he doesn't change. And this leads us to talk about his actions. Because this is where we see God's goodness. What does God do in this passage? What kind of deeds come from an untemptable, unchangeable being like God? And here, real quick, it's interesting to note that James says, Don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. It's interesting that he uses this phrase, my beloved brothers. This is the first time he does it because James seems to be saying, he's cueing and he's saying, look, I know that this is hard. This is hard. Beloved brothers. He's not, while he's being very clear about the danger of temptation and sin, he also wants to now say, don't be deceived. This is serious, but beloved brothers... I understand. He's being very tender and warm with them. So don't be deceived in the hardship. God has no desire that you would be drawn away from him and destroyed. He does not want them to miss out on the goodness of God because it is the goodness of God that will help them get through the hard things. And he says, in fact, that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Not some, not some good gifts, not most good gifts, but every good gift. You think about every single good thing that you have, and that is from God. That is from God. Every good thing that you can think of. There's no good things coming from some other source. God is the ultimate source of all good things. And one of the good gifts that he gives in James is wisdom. If you look back at James 1, verses 4 and 5, James says, "...let steadfastness have its full effect." that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, right? That's the same language we have in our passage. But, verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. And what's wisdom for? 
Wisdom, one of the key things about wisdom is being able to discern between right and wrong, to know what to do, what the right thing to do in a given situation is. And God, not only is he not tempted and he won't tempt you, he in fact will give you what you need when those difficult situations come. So rather than being a hindrance in any way, his aim is entirely to get you through. And it's also here that James, for the first time, refers to God as Father. And he uses this really weird title, title, Father of Lights, which doesn't appear anywhere else in the Bible. And it seems that James is highlighting this phrase, this title, Father of Lights, because in Genesis chapter 1, one of the first things that God does is he turns the lights on. And light throughout the Bible is always associated with goodness. And you need light to see. You need light for things to grow. And what is striking is that not only is he the father of lights, but we're also told that he gave birth to us. He's also our father. And this actually is a point where James is very much in agreement with Paul. One of Paul's key themes is that if you're in Christ, you're a son or daughter of God. For example, in Galatians chapter 4, Paul says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, saying, Abba, or Daddy, Father, so you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. So he gives wisdom, he gives every perfect gift, and he gives you adoption, he births you. And he will also give you, we're told in verse 12, a crown of life if you persevere. So how does he do this? How does God make us his children? What are his methods? What is the means by which he gives us good gifts, and life. It's by his word. Verse 18, he brought us forth by the word of truth. And this word of truth, almost certainly in James' mind, because Paul and Peter also use it, is the gospel. It is the the word of truth about God's son, first son, the Lord Jesus who became human, lived a perfect life, died a death in our place, now lives forever on our behalf. And what's interesting is that James says, he could have said he gives us life by the word, and people probably would have known what it meant. But he says the word of truth, he emphasizes that it is a truthful word. Again, think back to Genesis in chapter 3. 
One of the things that seems to be the Achilles heel of Adam and Eve is that they started to not think that God's word was true. They doubted his promise. But it is, in fact, God's word that gives life and makes alive. And that this word not only makes us alive, it's the word of truth that gives us life, that brings us forth. But in verse 12, and these are kind of bookends, verse 12, he promised the crown of life. Verse 18 brings us forth by the word of truth. So God's word from beginning to end is what sustains and motivates us. Here's a great quote from the pastor theologian Martin Luther on the word of God. Put aside all kinds of works, contemplation, meditation, and all that a soul can do, everything that you can do, it does not help. Your efforts do not help. One thing and only one thing is necessary for the Christian life, righteousness and freedom. That, sorry, for the Christian life, including righteousness and freedom. That one thing is the most holy word of God. The gospel of Christ, as Christ says in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And in John 8, so if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. In Matthew 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Let us then consider it certain and firmly established that the soul cannot do without anything except the word of God, and that where the word of God is missing, there is no help at all for the soul. If it has the word of God, it is rich and lacks nothing since it is the word of life, truth, light, peace, righteousness, joy, salvation, liberty, wisdom, power, grace, glory, and every incalculable blessing. You never graduate from the Bible, no matter how super Christian you are. Luther continues, on the other hand, there is no more terrible disaster with which the wrath of God can afflict men than a famine of hearing the word of the hearing of his word, as he says in Amos chapter 8. Likewise, there is no greater mercy than when he sends forth his word, as we read in Psalm 107. He sent forth his word and healed them and delivered them from destruction. Nor was Christ sent into the world for any other ministry except that of the word. Moreover, the entire spiritual state that is, all the offices in the church, has been called and instituted only for the ministry of the Word. The Word of God is powerful. And James says that it is what makes us alive. It's what makes us God's children. And in contrast, we have two birthing processes here in our passage. The one is where sin drags us away and leads to death, gives birth to death, or where God's word gives birth to us and to life. They move in opposite directions. So one of the questions is, what role does God's word play in your life, in your household, in, in our lives as a church? 
God's word is the thing that makes alive. And we want to saturate ourselves in the word of God. We want to hear it. We want to meditate on it. We want it to be the thing that sustains us through the hardships. And to recognize that when God speaks, He's not speaking as some external, mere authoritarian figure telling you to shape up. He has shown His goodness by sending His Son and speaking the gospel of peace to us. He first speaks gospel peace to us and calls us to himself. And what is his ultimate purpose? This is our last point here. Verse 18, he willed is how the sentence starts. He willed, he wanted to do something. And it was that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And this first fruits is very much tied to the promise in verse 12 of the crown of life, right? The first fruits of the harvest you gather in, and it's joyful. Here's the food. This is the thing that's going to keep us alive for another season. We are first fruits. We will receive a crown. This is the language of when God makes all things new. The whole creation, all the hardships that we see, all the evil that has stained God's creation will be wiped away and things will be new. And if you are in Christ, if you've trusted in Christ, he's given you birth by his word. That wasn't an accident. It wasn't an unplanned pregnancy. He intended for you to have life. He intended for you to be a first fruits. And this is also actually very similar to Paul, 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. That is the same language. New creation, first fruits. So if we think back now and look at this passage in light of Genesis 1, 2, and 3, right? Genesis 1 and 2, God makes everything good, right? The recurring phrase is good, good, good. Everything that comes from God is good just like we have here in James, every good and perfect gift. But then Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, they face temptation, and the tempter comes, and they forgot two things. They forgot the goodness of God in his creation that they saw, and they forgot his word, and they forgot that it was true. So they doubted his truthfulness and his goodness, And they thought that their perfection and their completion would come from someplace other than him. They sought wisdom in the forbidden fruit. And the desire for wisdom, disconnected from God's word, brought forth not only death for themselves, but for all of us. And James seems to be drawing this passage to mind for all of us. God does not tempt And God does not change. He does not lie. His word is true. It makes all things that touch it alive. And he promises life. So if you are facing trials, or 
Maybe not right now. You will face trials. There are two outcomes, life or death. And what will help you persevere through the trials? Reaching that place of perseverance depends on your ability to take hold of God's true word and his unchangeable goodness. But more importantly, more foundationally, it depends entirely upon God's incredible unchanging goodness toward you in Christ. His fatherly goodness secures you if you trust. And it is, in fact, this goodness of God that prompts at the very end of James that are you suffering? You should pray. Are things going well? You should sing. In both circumstances, God is there. James 5.13. So, both help us, the praising and the praying, help us to persevere through hardship towards our Father, towards the crown, towards that new creation life that He's promising, through every manner of temptation, hardship, and suffering that you will ever encounter. Confident that the Father will not fail, that He is constant, and He is good, He is trustworthy, and everything that comes from Him is life-giving. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are utterly good, utterly dependable, that you are unchanging for all the things that we see that change, for all the ways that we ourselves let others down and others let us down. We thank you that you will not let us down, that everything you say will come to pass, everything that you say will come true, and everything that you have said is true. And I pray for those in this room who are suffering severe hardships and temptations. I pray that you would, this day, enable them to dig into your word and to take a hold of it and know that it is your word that sustains them. It is your word that gives life. For those who don't know Christ, who have not yet experienced the new life that Christ gives, I pray, O oh Lord, they would hear and they would come to you today. We need your help, Heavenly Father, and we thank you that you are good. And we thank you in the name of Christ, your Son. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.